So very welcome to everybody. You can open up to the book of Revelation because we started tonight a, uh, a new series in that book. It's our habit and our practice because we believe that the most healthy, most biblical thing to do, we just go through books of the Bible at Hope Reformed Baptist Church. That's what we're going to be doing as uh, uh, Hope Gold Coast as well, going through books of the Bible, letting God speak in his context, uh, in his order, uh, as he does through the apostles' words. Um, and so we've picked up uh, uh, in the book of Revelation, we're not going to do the whole book of Revelation. Some of you will sigh and say, ah, oh, you were really looking forward to it. Some of you are enormously uh, uh, relieved. We're not going to start a church plant on the book of Revelation uh, uh, doing the whole thing. What we will do is we're going to do the first three chapters. The first chapter is an enormous, glorious picture of Jesus Christ in his resurrected, ascended, glorious, triumphant power. That's what we'll do this week and next week. And then we're going to go into the letters that Jesus writes through the Apostle John to the churches uh, in Asia Minor back then in the first century. <clears throat> so uh, uh, I'm going to read verse 1 through to verse 20 because uh, it's a whole unit and it's such a powerful passage and then we're going to go back and go line by line through uh, verse 1 to 8. Just before I read, I just want to reiterate that we're so uh, so glad you're here if you're visiting or if you're looking for a church or if I've not met you yet, really glad you're here and we hope to see you afterwards. Please hang around and have lots of time with us. So the book of Revelation and it's Revelation. Let's just get this off the bat. No S on there, no revelations, one revelation. I've got a stick now, so I'll be enforcing that. Revelation, all right, chapter 1, verse 1, reads like this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That would be me. And blessed are those who hear, that would be you, and who keep what is written in it, that would be all of us, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We read those bits together. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierce him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna and Pergamum, to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. 
and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and to Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, sorry, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. May God bless the reading of his own inerrant, powerful word in our midst this evening. That's a little lesson for you. If, this, if you're new, or if this is your first of many services with us, we give a big amen after we pray that God would bless us as we read his words. I'll give you another chance because uh, that's a part that we get to uh, all partake in. May God bless this word in our midst this evening. Very good. Go back to verse 1. We're only going to go through the first eight verses this evening because that is all that I... I had a, a whole sermon on all of chapter 1, but I'll tell you, this is also a little secret. I've already preached this sermon. I was told by my anesthetist on Friday that while they were putting my foot into a cast, I was screaming about the rider on a white horse who is raised from the dead and that all people must repent. I was even told that I looked at my doctor and told him that smarts do not equal wisdom and healing other people does not mean eternal life and that he has to repent. He still did a pretty good job on my foot. I'm glad he wasn't petty about it. But I have already preached this, and in my comatose state, I decided it was too long. So we're going to do half of it tonight. The first thing that we're going to see is that God speaks to us through John's revelation. Look at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even all that he saw. The author of the book of Revelation is John, humanly speaking, but he is writing down what has been delivered to him by an angel, which Jesus sent to him to tell John what God the Father told Jesus to give to the angel to give to John. So note the hierarchy. It goes from God the Father to Jesus Christ, to the angel, to John the Apostle, and as the apostles were commissioned to do, they wrote scripture and now he writes to us. But what that hierarchy shows us is, I mean, it's apocalyptic, there's a lot of imagery, uh, a lot of it is, is going to be uh, borne out through the rest of the book, but what it tells us is from first to last, God speaks to his people through scripture. John is writing the scripture, humanly speaking, but God is superintending all of his words, all of his writing to us. This is going to be the first mark of anything and everything that Hope Reformed Baptist Church believes and does. God speaks to his servants through the scriptures. When God wants to speak to us, he speaks through the scriptures, and when the scriptures are heard, God's voice is heard. We can also go a little bit further than say, and say that when, when God's, God's scripture is preached, God's voice is being heard. Not inherently, we listen with discernment, and yet the Puritans used to call it a, a re-revelation. Scripture is revealed and written, and then it is re-revealed, as if you take a, 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 a toy and, and you put a torch right up behind it, and it shines forth through. That happens again, this, this re-illumination through the preaching of God's words, which is the key mark and key command that we see Jesus give to his church to be a preaching people. 
to be a proclaiming people, to be a truth-speaking, gospel-speaking people. And so we will be, because we believe that God speaks to us through John's revelation and through all of Scripture. So, so this is not an invitation to hear the voice of a guru or a spiritual leader or, for heaven's sake, a life coach who sits down behind a stool to preach to people. No, it's not that. We're not having a chat. What church is is coming to hear the voice of God himself as he has revealed himself in Scripture. And therefore, we come with open and humble hearts. Amen? That's number one. God speaks to us through John's revelation. But number two, Jesus himself is the message of revelation. Jesus is not just one of the links in the chain that tells us things. He is himself the focal message of revelation. Look at verse 1. We're actually told that this whole book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, the revealing of Jesus Christ. What does revelation make clear to us? You might have read it before and think it makes nothing clear to us. You're reading it wrong. The book of Revelation makes clear to us Jesus Christ. The key message, the key point, the key focus of all of the book of Revelation, in fact all of Scripture, is Jesus. The message of Scripture from God is Jesus. You even see it again reiterated in verse 2 to John. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ is the same thing. He says that, uh, that John bore witness to the word of God and the testimony about Jesus Christ, which is, as verse 2 ends out, all that he saw, which verse 1 told us was the revelation of Jesus. So the word of God, the testimony that is being given John here that we will learn from this book, the message of the book of Revelation is Jesus himself. When we come to scripture, any scripture, and namely now the book of Revelation, we understand that God is speaking. Jesus is the message. The gospel is a message about a person, his work, the fact that he lived a sin-free life, the fact that he died in our place and for our sins, the fact that three days later he rose from the dead in triumph over sin, over Satan, over death, and over everything that would keep us condemned so that now we have a good news message to proclaim. That risen Jesus was ascended to the Father's right hand from where he rules and reigns and saves people. That's the message of Scripture. That's the message of the Gospel. It is about a person. That person is Jesus Christ. That is why, if you look at verse 3, we are blessed as we read and as we hear. Because to know Jesus Christ is to know our Creator. To hear Jesus Christ preached is to be reconciled and have reconciliation put on offer with our God. Of course it's going to be a blessing if we read and hear and understand and seek to obey the message about Jesus. So verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and, the, uh, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written for the time is near. In John's first century audience, there was immediate application. Let's just, we're not going to go into all the debates around when Revelation namely points to and all of that. I've already done that in previous sermon series and Bible studies. You can hit me up about it after. But know this, if our view of Revelation is that everything is for the last generation of earth, you've missed it. 
because John believes that that first century generation had at least something to be applied to them. He says to them, the time is near, to you, if you hear it and understand it and learn it, you will be blessed. So that is verse 3. Now, fourthly, what we're going to see, we're going to start zeroing in here on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So look at verse 5. Sorry, in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Now, what we're going to see coming through here, you might not have noticed it, but this is a classic New Testament Trinitarian formula. It's a bunch of words. If you're new to church, it doesn't matter. Basically, what we saw there is one of those clues in Scripture that tell us that God is not just one God. He is one God. God is one God, and he is also three persons, three distinct eternal persons. We call them the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because that is how God has revealed himself to us. And we see it here in verse 4 and 5. Look at this. We see grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That is Old Testament language for God the Father, for God himself. Old Testament language is that, is that God is, uh, sorry, that he was, that he is, and he is to come. In other words, he's the eternal being. Scripture points out to us that there is only one, and there is one eternal being. Uh, we might call him God. Uh, the New Testament will usually refer to the Father as God distinctly. And so what we have here is the recognition of the Father, him who is, who was, and who is to come. But furthermore, we see the next part, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, when you come into the book of Revelation, there's going to be lots of imagery, symbolism. It's just a part of the apocalyptic literature. When you see seven, almost always, that is a picture of some kind. Uh, One of the messages that is coming across with the number seven is fullness, completeness. When you see here the seven spirits of God before his throne, don't assume that we now have seven Holy Spirits. It is one Holy Spirit who is pictured in seven manifestations as showing that he is the full, the complete. He is the one true Holy Spirit and is the Holy Spirit's job to mediate to us, to, to bring what God has to us. That's why God is on the throne. He is who was and who is to come. And the Holy Spirit is before the throne to bring the grace and the peace from God to us. That's why it started out grace and peace from God and his Spirit And thirdly, we see the Son, the seven spirits who are before his throne in verse 5, and Jesus Christ. Here we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is he who became incarnate, came into our flesh, took on a human nature so that he can bring the grace and the peace that the Father wishes to give so that he can achieve for us the grace and the peace that the Holy Spirit would then apply to us. We see a Trinitarian God right here giving to us grace and peace through the message of Scripture, which is all about Jesus Christ. Are you tracking so far? So far we have God, the Trinitarian God, on the throne, giving to us human beings, rebels and sinners, though we are, grace and peace, through the word about Jesus and his gospel. 
And now we start going a little bit deeper into this truth about Jesus himself. Before we move on, the seven churches here in verse 4, John is writing to the seven churches for Jesus. They are real seven churches. They're literal seven churches. There's physical first century seven churches. But because that number seven has been picked, I think they're also symbolic of all of the churches, every church that would ever exist. And that's why we can start pulling application in the future weeks of what God says to them, because they are some symbolic of every church. God the Father, his spirit and his son give grace and peace to every true church. We see number four here. Number four from, from verse five, we see three offices of Jesus Christ. So first we're going to see Jesus Christ is our prophet. We're going to see then that he's our priest and that he is the king. In theological studies, especially since John Calvin, he's a hero of mine from the 15, uh, 15 and 1600s, he wrote that, uh, that, that, and he shows us that in the Old Testament, people who were especially chosen by God and given jobs to do in anointed official roles were usually either a priest or a prophet, or a king. Those were the three important roles. The priest's job would be to make sacrifices and to pray for the people. The prophet's job would be to speak God's word to the people. And the king's job was to rule over the people of God in the kingdom of God. What we see in the New Testament is that Jesus fulfills all three of those offices, which were usually in the Old Testament distinct people. They all culminate in him, and he fulfills them all for us in the kingdom of God. Look first here, we're going to see that he is our faithful prophet. Verse 5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. We see here that, that he, he is the witness in, in the sense that he is he's taking out a prophetic role. He is witnessing to us what is true about God as a, as a prophet would. He is fulfilling his prophetic role. He bears witness. He testifies to us about God's nature and his word. He reveals God to us. And he does so, the text says, faithfully, trustworthily, truly, honestly. He is faithful in his message and truly reveals to us what God is like. John chapter 1, verse 14, to the same author, when he's writing his gospel, he says in chapter 1, verse 14, that the word of God, which many other prophets had spoken, had become flesh. That was Jesus. Jesus is the word flesh, whereas other prophets had just been, been preaching the word, giving some clues about the word, but Jesus is the word incarnate. In fact, verse 18 of John chapter 1 tells us that he, the son, literally exegetes the father. He, he, he shows the underlying meaning, the hidden truth, the invisible reality of God, the father. That's what Jesus shows, reveals to us. Jesus is the most faithful witness that there is. This is why we preach Jesus. This is why he gives us grace and peace. And this is why the message of the whole Bible is about him, because in him we truly learn about God and find reconciliation. There are many, there are many false prophets in our world today. Not all of them are very apparent. You might, you might think of some behind pulpits or sitting behind tables on stools in, in churches. I'm not going to give up that joke. I love making fun of pastors who do that. Maybe there's some false prophets who look like that or who are on the Christian radio station or the Christmas TV, Christian TV station. But there's also false prophets in our world that tell us things that are not true about God behind, behind the podcaster, behind, behind the, the counselor's table, behind the, the talk show host table. 
We find a lot of people telling us lies about God these days. He's just not that much of a judge. He doesn't really care about sin all that much. He's not old-fashioned like they want to tell you in church. He's moved on from the scripture. You won't face him when you die. There's no need to fear him. He's just in love with you. You know, he's kind of a bad father. He does owe you something. He's always trying to restrict you and limit you. And so like Satan in the Garden of Eden, we have around us in the world many people trying to tell false things about God. But Jesus carries, speaks, and in fact is the faithful, true word about God. In him, there is no darkness whatsoever. He is entirely trustworthy. So Jesus is our prophet. He's the faithful witness, and we can trust his word. But moving on, Jesus is also our high priest. This one's a little bit more hidden. Look at uh, at verse 5. It says that he's our faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. What do priests do? In the Old Testament, priests would take the sacrifice, kill the sacrifice, go into the, the hidden place, into the holy place, where people could not see, they would go in behind those curtains, they would make the sacrifice, and if the sacrifice was accepted, God would let them leave alive. And you know that when you keep an eye on that holy place, if the curtains open up and the priest comes back out, then your sacrifice was accepted. And so Jesus is our high priest, who went through the grave into the holy place of God and who we saw come out of the grave as confirmation that God has accepted his sacrifice. That's why he's born from the dead. That's why he is the firstborn from the dead, because he went where we could not go and made a sacrifice we could not make so that the rest of us can be also risen from the dead in him. He is our high priest who made the sacrifice of himself. In verse 13, as John looks and sees this glorious picture of the Son of Man, he sees that he's wearing a a long robe with a golden sash. That's a priest's outfit. Jesus is making very clear to us, he is the fulfillment of the old system. He mediates you to God. He made the sacrifice. He now prays for you as a good priest would. Jesus is our priest and has become our leader. Then sixthly, we see, look at verse 5, we see that he is also the king. Jesus is prophet, Jesus is priest, and Jesus is king. Now note, it doesn't tell us that he's king of your heart. Jesus is king of the church, but he's not just king of the church. Jesus is the archon, the Greek says, the ruler over all. The the, the English says he is the ruler of kings on earth. This is one of the most common themes in New Testament apostolic preaching. They say that after you killed Jesus, after he died, after he was buried, and after he rose, he was then ascended furthermore to the right hand of God, to the highest seat of power and authority. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus himself says before his ascension, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Acts chapter 2, Peter says that he is on the throne of David. Ephesians 1.21 says that he is above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name. 
He is, uh, God has made him both Lord and Christ, Acts 2 verse 36 says. And Philippians 2 tells us that God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And then Revelation picks up this imagery and keeps on calling Jesus incessantly the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is Jesus. What an amazing comfort that would be if you're the persecuted church in the first century and you're trying to worship Jesus and you're trying to do the good works that he's given you to do, believe and obey the commandments of the apostles, hold fast to the gospel, never stop meeting together, and you have on your back, breathing down your neck, sharpening their swords, killing your children and your loved ones, the Roman army with thousands and thousands of legionnaires to, ch to capture you, chase you, and crucify you. Headed up by, by the beast, Nero, a, a horrible Caesar. Any one of those Caesars were murderous, thuggish men who loved to take down any competition to his throne of being called Lord. Kaiser ho kurios is what the Roman tagline was, meaning Caesar is Lord. Do you see how threatening then it would have been to every Roman and to Caesar for the Christians to say continuously in their worship services, Jesus is Lord. And for John to be encouraged with this message to take to the churches, Jesus is ruler of the kings on earth. There's not a single political person, ruler, governor, Caesar, that does what he does without giving ultimate accountability to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not a single person in office or commanding the armies of Rome that will not be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single political ruler is ultimately just a chess piece on Christ's chessboard and he borrows to them just slight bits of authority to do whatever he wants them to do before he knocks them down, lest they repent. Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus is our prophet. He is our high priest. And he is the king of the whole universe. Now, we now need to now start asking as we move into verse 6, what did Jesus do? If Jesus is the message of the Bible that God would speak to us, if Jesus is the priest, the prophet, the king, the eternal God, he who is, was, and is to come, if that's him, what did he do in that role of priest, prophet, and king? He gave us, as we've already seen, grace and peace. Where he could have cursed us as a good prophet would to us sinners, he could have cut us off and kept us out of the holy place as a good priest would. He could have destroyed us, chased us, enslaved us and killed us as a good and righteous king would. But instead, we are told, that he loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. What did Jesus do with all of his authority, with all of his divinity and eternality and power? He loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. Jesus 
loves us. I love that that's present tense, not just past tense. He loved you when he put together this plan. He's not so sure about it right now. He loves, present tense, loves to every generation that can read the scripture, loves us who by nature are children of wrath, who by nature hate him and God and their law and his righteousness to us who have been his enemies. He loves us and freed us from our sins. We were we were not just guilty because of our sins. We were definitely that. I want everybody to hear me very clearly that when the Bible talks about sins, it doesn't mean little mistakes, no, whoopsies, things that God wants to help us do better, you know, failing your ultimate potential. That's not sin. Sin is guilt. Sin is rebellion. Sin is, sin is something that condemns you. It's, an, it's a crime against the, the king of all kings. And yet the Bible also fills in the, the picture a little bit more and says not only does it condemn you, sin also traps you. Like, like somebody who's caught in a, in a bog, like in a thick tar, a big, a big pool of, of pitch that you can't get out. And the, the faster and the harder that you struggle, the deeper you sink. And just to add to the analogy, imagine that the city's sewage is running into that pool. You're stuck. You're filthy. Not only is it hard to save you, nobody wants to. But Jesus has loved us and freed us from our sins. He has taken us up out of that and cleansed us, made us pure, made us holy. And he did it, the verse goes on to say, by his blood. That is, that that he could not just rescue us and throw our sins under the the carpet. He couldn't just rescue us as if we had fallen into into a trap. We were guilty, and therefore we had the death penalty against us in God's law. And so in order to free us, blood had to be shed. And so he reversed the death penalty that was against us by shedding his own blood, by being himself destroyed under the law of God and the wrath of God. Jesus saved us by having his own blood shed. The the judicial sentence of condemnation was taken away and we were called righteous in him. So in other words, if you want a summary of that to answer the question, what did Jesus do in his role as prophet, priest, and king? The answer is he established the church. That's what he did. Have you seen the church? Have you spent any time in the church? You think that the most glorious power ever to exist wanted to do something with his time? And he made this. People made from the dirt, still screwing up, still stuffing around, totally imperfect. And he puts his name on us and says, that's what I did with all of my power. But you just have to read till the end of the book and you see that how Jesus sees us, where he's leading us, is a pure white bride coming to sit with an eternal bridegroom on a wedding day. Jesus, with all of his power, all of his prophetic role, priestly role, and kingly role, he established the church. Look at verse 6. He made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. Verse 9 of chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 9, they're they're singing, and they say to Jesus, you are slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
You see that this is, this is kind of a theme in the book of Revelation, that Jesus, by his blood, has made a kingdom of priests holy to himself. In other words, as the prophet, priest, and king, Jesus made us prophets, priests, and kings. He made us the kingdom. The, ch- the, the church is most powerful when she knows her true identity. The church's identity is, like Christ, prophets, priests, and kings, as chapter 5, verse 10 just told me, ruling on the earth. We are ruling with Christ's authority on the earth. We are a kingdom because we apply his reign to all of life. We are priests because we're made holy to serve him and to worship him. And we are prophets because we speak the word of God even to the point of shedding our blood and becoming martyrs, which is another common theme in the book of Revelation. So what Jesus did with all of his power, with all of his glory as prophet, priest, and king, he made the church through his blood and made us like him, a prophet, a, a, a people of prophets, of priests and kings. Number eight, we have ten. Ten points. I don't know if you're writing it down, if you're tracking with me, but we've got ten points. We're up to number eight. So number eight is that Jesus is worthy of all glory. Look at verse six. He made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Jesus is objectively worthy of all glory because the book of Revelation keeps on pinning his glory. The reason he's worthy to receive that glory is because he obeyed his Father and came to this world and died for his people and purchased the kingdom of priests. He is worthy, therefore, to be praised, to be given all glory. From, first of all, the church. The church, we should be giving that that glory to him. That's the the, the sense in which it's just said then. Uh, We say amen to that phrase, may he receive all glory and power and dominion. Yes, amen. From the church. In fact, chapter 5, verse 12, again, the church will say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." Verse 13 will say, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So this is the song of the redeemed throughout the book of Revelation. Therefore, throughout the whole of church history, this is our theme. The song of the redeemed is Christ's blood has redeemed me. I was a sinner. He was perfect. By his grace, he purchased me by his blood. There's a hymn that we love to sing in hope. It says, on one of the last stanzas. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. That's on Charles Spurgeon's gravestone. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Friends, the book of Revelation tells us it doesn't stop there. It's still our theme for all of eternity. From the church, Jesus is worthy of receiving glory and honor. But also from his enemies. Look at verse 7. Jesus will receive glory from the Father, even through his enemies. Verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. What a hard thing to amen. The destruction of Christ's enemies, who are wailing 
who are screaming for mercy, but they don't get it because they want mercy outside of Jesus. And there's no mercy outside of Jesus. Even through his enemies, Jesus will receive the glory by coming back and judging them. But look now also from the Father, because the question I want to ask is, who gave him that glory? Who gave Jesus all of this glory that the church is now singing to? Because, because in a true sense, we don't give Jesus any glory. I know I just said for like five minutes we should give Jesus glory, but in a true sense, we don't give him any glory. Just like you don't look at the Mona Lisa and give it any beauty or look at the sunrise and give it any warmth just because your words say, wow, that's warm. Never happens. This is what we call ascribed glory. We look at Jesus and all that he has done for us in the gospel and we ascribe glory to him. We say, you are glorious. You're worthy of glory. We praise you. Never makes him more glorious. He is objectively glorious whether you realize it or not because the Father has given to him that glory. He who was and is and is to come gave to Jesus all of that glory. Therefore, he has it, whether we recognize it or not. The message of the gospel, friends, and maybe you're not a Christian yet, the message of the gospel is not, I hope you think Jesus is worth your time. Please make him your Lord. He would love to increase his empire a little bit. And if you can come to his team, he he sure would be happy. The message of the gospel is a proclamation and a demand. Jesus is Lord. He did die, he did rise, he now commands, repent or perish as one of his enemies. But come, because it's the day of salvation. It is the glorious, joyful day to be saved, not to run. God gave him that glory as Daniel 7, which that picture of the Son of Man riding on clouds is foretelling, but we don't have time to go there. Because God has glorified Jesus with all dominion, we are therefore to recognize it and praise his glory and his kingdom. Number nine, God is the only one controlling history. Look at verse eight. Christians need to know this today. We put a lot of hope in politicians. We put a lot of hope in different uh, programs. We put a lot of hope or or lose a lot of hope because we're, we're just not sure about what history holds. God is the only one who controls every single detail of history. Verse eight, I am the alpha And the Omega says the Lord God. Our focus has gone from Jesus, the Lamb, the Son, to God, the Father, who who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. These are Old Testament language phrases for God, for the Father. And he also throws in a Greek phrase. He starts out by saying, I am, that's, that's already a clue of the Hebrew name for God, I am Yahweh. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The reason the application for this point is that God controls history is because the the Greeks, their alphabet went from Alpha all the way down to Omega, but also in their philosophy they believed that there there was a Big Bang type moment, an Alpha point of all history, when all creation, when all meaning, when all logic, when all purpose exploded or, or began, and there will be an omega point. And for you to know why we're here and for you to tap into the most wisdom and for you to be the best person you can be in this universe, you need to understand what that omega point is, sorry, that alpha point is, and you need to understand where it's going to the omega point and align yourself with it. It's, it's in other words, saying all the details and all the purpose of all of history, the alpha and the omega, and God says, that is me. I am the point that began it all. I am the point that it all comes to. It is all about God, and God fixes our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But he uses another phrase. He says, who is and who was and who is to come, which is again an Old Testament language for God. In other words, to say that he always has been. He is currently ruling and yet there's something future to come. He will come furthermore. He will accomplish all of his purposes in history. This is a necessary reminder for the church. God has utter, complete sovereignty and control. Nothing's random. There's not a single thing called luck in this world. Nothing's happenstance. There's not even a coincidence. History is the battle campaign of our victorious God leading the church militantly on to victory. Only a sovereign God can comfort his church the way that God comforts his people in the book of Revelation. Only a church who believes in the sovereignty of God can take comfort in those promises as we look out on the scary prospects, the enemies, the, the things that would stand against us, the hurdles to a small church that's starting out even like ours. We would say all those things are against us, but who can be against us if God is for us? For he is and was and is to come. He is the Almighty. So lastly, and to close, you owe Jesus your trust and repentance. God, in summary, God speaks to his people. He speaks to us through the Bible, which is all about Jesus. And Jesus died for us, rose for us, now reigns and rules for us as the prophet, priest, and king. And he welcomes, bids, calls, commands every person who does not yet know him or who has pretended to know him for a while, or who has believed in a very soft and fake and phony, unbiblical version of Jesus, who doesn't fit any of what we're looking at here. He commands you to repent from your sin, living a life away from him, trying to find satisfaction and, and meaning away from him. There's no mercy there. There's no true joy there. There is only judgment. Come back to him. You owe him your repentance, which is to lay down your arms and, and call him your Lord. And you owe him your trust. He is the faithful witness. He is the true prophet, priest, and king who can and will save all those who come to God through him. Let's pray. Father God, it is an unfair task to be given a text like Revelation and to try in human might, even aided by your Holy Spirit, to be able to pull out all of the glory that Jesus has embedded into this text. There is no wonder that it continues to baffle us and that this book continues to be a, a source of so much uh, mystery and glory and, and encouragement to the church 2,000 years on and into the future. This, this text is sacred and it is from you, breathed out by you through your Apostle John and given to us that we might be blessed in reading it and hearing it. Father God, we have no blessings no grace, no mercy outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, therefore, that while one much might go over somebody's head, if, if somebody is here and has not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that that would be their, their next step, that that would be their, their, their experience tonight, a believing on what has been said about Jesus, a trusting him with their soul and with their sin because he is worthy and he is able to save. We pray, Lord God, that we as a church, would honor you and seek to exalt the lordship of Jesus Christ above all things. That you would make us, like Jesus, faithful witnesses to the gospel. That you would make us, like Jesus, priests that, that bring other people under the holy, holy call of the gospel. And that we would apply your rule and reign to all of life. We would honor you. 
Father God, in this church and through whatever the future holds for her, may you honour and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ by saving souls and building your kingdom. For it is in his victorious, triumphant, merciful, gracious name that we pray all of these things. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Please be standing.